The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Today, expert knowledge is so highly valued that we learn to lead first as the expert whose mastery of the details helps teams solve problems. Eventually, as your leadership role expands, expert leaders find themselves in a role where others know more. Details are no longer so accessible, and decisions are made without a full understanding. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone with Dr. Wanda Wallace. It's time to find out how to make the transformation smooth and flawless. Now, here is Dr. Wanda Wallace. Welcome to the show. If you're looking at the news in the last 24 hours, or the last three months, or the last two years, or practically any time, you know that thing that is a turbulent time, um, that things can change quite dramatically and rather quickly. It's true in business as well. It seems that everyone I deal with is uncertain, both uncertain about the world and the world events, as well as uncertain about the future of the company, the next step of directions, where the next sales are coming from, and so forth. We all know that there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of volatility. There's all this access to information, and all the chaos are just a few of the driving forces that are really affecting us as leaders today. And the truth of the matter is, whether we like it or not, very little is under our control. However, our role as leaders, whether that's on a large scale or on a small scale, is really critical for people around us. And part of our job is try to make sense out of some of this chaos. All right, so how then can you think about leading in turbulent times? And what are the key skills that are going to get you through all this turbulence into the other side? And that is really the focus of our show today. So with me is Eric McNulty. Eric is a writer, speaker, educator with a passion for purpose-driven leadership. He delivers keynotes, workshops around the world, and he teaches in leadership programs at both Harvard and MIT. He's the director of research and program faculty at Harvard's National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, and he works his work centers around leadership in high-stakes, high-stress situations. The author of a number of books, one in particular, The Three Critical Shifts in Thinking for the Evolving Leader, and he writes a regular column for strategy and business. So, Eric, welcome to the show. Wanda, thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to this one because I don't think we could have a better timing for this show than given the events of the last week. Now, you've done a lot of work on how to lead when conditions are tough, chaotic, uncertain, turbulent, pretty much every day mostly. So what is it we need to be thinking about this and what, how can we understand what's driving all this chaos and uncertainty? Well, I think there's a, you're quite correct. I mean, things are much more volatile than they have been 10 years ago, let's say, to, to, to pick a benchmark. Um, and we are seeing a lot of turbulence around us, and it seems like everything is just chaotic and a bit crazy. And I think that one of the things we are, we, we've grown so used to a fairly linear, predictable, certain world that we're really thrown aback. I mean, the, as you mentioned, the, the events last night in Nice, uh, last week in Dallas and in Minneapolis and Baton Rouge before that, and then 
Baghdad and Istanbul, and you can go on and on uh, of the uh, the uncertainty around us. And so, one thing that helps is to have a framework for that. Uh, and the one that I use, I call VUCAST, which is based on starts with VUCA, which is a acronym the U.S. military came up with in the late 1990s after the Soviet Union had fallen and they began to face these sort of smaller group threats like Al-Qaeda and uh, they said, you know, hey, the world is it is volatile, it's uncertain, it's complex and it's ambiguous. So lots of change, not sure where it's coming from, lots of interdependencies that are hard to discern sometimes and everything seems a little bit fuzzy, much fuzzier than it did uh, when we were, for example, you know, it was the the West versus the Soviet bloc, but everything seemed very static. Now, I add to that an S and a T. Um, the S is for system scale change. And I think this is a big one. Um, we are looking at trends that are global, that are going to affect every company, every individual, and no single person, entity, or even nation can bend the trend, the, the trend curve. So these are climate change, for example where we are seeing unsettled weather patterns, we're seeing drought, we're seeing wildfires, we're seeing flooding. Um, and these changes are, we have some idea where they're going to go. We, we've seen the general trend curve, but you can't predict exactly what the, each incident is going to be. And that creates a, another level of complexity as we think about, for example, all of our cities that are built around water and with rising sea levels. It just makes things that much tougher. Uh, we've got an aging global population. Um, we are, as a species, getting older because we are li- both living longer and the birth rates are, are going down. And so Europe is at the f- front of this curve, then comes North America, then China, and then you're going to have a relatively young population in the southern hemisphere. Wealth remains concentrated in the north with the aging population. Lots of potential conflict there. You've got urbanization. We are becoming a, a truly urban species. That's predicted by t- 2030, uh, 75% of us will live in cities. And I'm not talking about New York or London or Tokyo, the things we traditionally think of as cities. I'm talking about Lagos, Nigeria. I'm talking about Dar es Salaam. I'm talking about Dakar, Bangladesh. These are areas that do not have a lot of traditional, traditionally strong governance, traditionally strong infrastructure, traditionally strong public health services. So again, lots of volatility can come there as we begin to get to these sort of ad hoc urban areas that are going to be the dominant centers of population. You look at how Ebola spread so quickly year, uh, a little over a year ago, um, in part because it broke out in an urban area. And then finally, the, in- the continued increase of our, abil- our computing ability, our ability to interconnect it digitally, that's going to keep going. The T is for transparency, and it's ubiquitous transparency. And boy, are we seeing that over and over again. Just last night in Nice, as that event was happening, people were uploading live video. Um, so the whole world was seeing it. The shooting in Minneapolis last week, where the woman sitting next to the gentleman who was shot was uploading it live to Facebook. Um, there was a cruise ship off of North Carolina sailed into a hurricane, and again, passengers were uploading video faster than the company could put out a press release. So almost everyone can see almost everything in almost real time. That frame is a place to start, thinking about what you're going to look at and put that lens of each one of those to your business, to your situation, and seeing what the impact might be for you. Well. Um, three, several things strike me about this one. First off, that we understand that it's not just uh, VUCA, meaning volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. 
there really are two additional components, and I really like the way you frame that, the system scale changes and then the transparency, that's instant access to absolutely everything that is compounding the volatility and uncertainty. And you can imagine being the cruise ship company trying to get a press release out, and you can't even think what you're going to say, let alone how you're going to say it or where you're going to say it, and the video was already live. Exactly. Uh, and if you put something out with, that's even a little bit delayed, <clears throat> that's not in sync with what people are saying, they say, oh, you're lying. Oh, you're covering up. Oh, you're out of touch. Um, and that's what's so challenging is you have to try and remain proactive amidst this constant stream of information. Yeah, I can see how that one do. I also liked when you talk about the system scales change that you highlighted really four trends, four megatrends that affect everybody on the face of the planet and that no single entity, organization, or country can actually really shift the trend. It is going on and it is such at a big scale that none of us can really change it. And you identified those as climate change, the aging population, the urbanization, particularly in places that we haven't typically thought about, and the computing digital connectivity. That's right. And, I, and these are trends I've been following since 2008 when I first started getting involved in this. A, a project sort of launched me off in this direction. And <clears throat> excuse me, these things are really unfolding before our eyes. And the only way we're going to meet them is to, is to work together. And I also want to emphasize that in each of these, you can perceive a threat, but you can also perceive opportunity. I mean, okay. by being aware of them and, again, using them as a lens for your business or your sector, look at how things are going to change. And there are, there are definitely opportunities embedded in this as well. Okay. All right. Now, before we talk about how to do this, and I agree with you, there's both threat and opportunity in this one. I want to go back to something you said at the very, very beginning, which is kind of a thing I have been focused on lately, and that's the notion of interdependencies. I think as a society, particularly as a Western and definitely as a corporate society, we're not hugely comfortable with the interdependent, meaning I can't control my own destiny. Somebody else is doing something that's also going to control my destiny and I can't control what they're doing. And I just don't think we have come to recognize some of the complexities of the interdependencies and how to work in an interdependent way. Love to hear your thoughts about that. Absolutely. And you hit it right on the head. I think that we are so used to thinking that as, as executives, as managers, we control things. You know, if you the old dictum of if you plan the work, work the plan, the plan will work. Well, that was nice once upon a time, but it's not necessarily true now. And I think it is, and this is where the insights from complexity theory and complexity science have been so important to understand that it really is about order, not control. You're trying to help create the conditions where the, the desired outcome you're looking for will emerge, but you can't make everybody do it. In fact, what complexity science has taught us is the more you try and try to impose control on a complex and adaptive system, the less order you get. It's sort of like playing whack-a-mole. Because, again, you can't perceive, no one can perceive all the interdependencies, all the relationships between the different stakeholders in your situation. There's a, I, I wish... You know, radio is a wonderful medium, but I wish I had a visual right here because there is a slide that generally Stanley, Stanley McChrystal had created when he was coalition commander in Afghanistan. You can find it on the New York Times website, actually, if you search for McChrystal PowerPoint. And they call it sort of the worst PowerPoint slide of all time. And it tries to map out all the players on the ground, all the factors that are going into it, and all the relationships between them, and that'll influence them, everything from the drug trade to the geopolitics to the Sunni-Shia split, all these things. And it looks like a big plate of spaghetti. Now, it really is hard to pull that apart, but I think it's a great slide because it 
opens your eyes to, wow, look at everything that's going on here. Look at what's within our control, outside of our control, and the impact things have on each other that we have no, we can perhaps influence, but we have no control over. And that just is, complexity is. And that's one of the first big mental leaps leaders need to make now is to realize you may not be comfortable with all those interdependencies, but they are there. They've always been there, but now we're getting much better at seeing them and understanding them. And it's the world in which we work, and it's ambiguity is part of life. Okay. All right. Now, you said, I love the statement. You said that trying to impose control, the more you try to impose control, the less order you get. And that what you want is order, not control. Say more about what that means, please. So, when you think about control, and if you accept the fact that you can't control everything, you then begin to think about, okay, where, what do I want to control? Where is that going to be effective? And control works when it's in the service of order and not the other way around. Now, part of my work is, is looking at large-scale uh, public responses to things like Deepwater Horizon or Hurricane Sandy, where lots of government agencies at the federal, state, and local level, you've got multiple jurisdictions, you've got the nonprofit sector, you've got corporate sector involved, and everyone there actually wants order. They want to know what's expected of them and what they can expect of others. Very few of them want to be controlled. And when you look at when someone tries to impose control over this vast array of entities who are trying to work, you know, work on the same situation, they usually get, you usually get a lot of friction. You get pushback. You get rebellion. You get people really going at each other. When, however, you can say we're, we're doing, we, we all want order. We're going to work toward order. And we're only going to impose control where it adds to order. Things work. People then say, okay, they like order, they don't like control. So when you're putting control in, you want to say, when is it going to add to order? When is it going to subtract from order? Um, too many rules, too many regulations, too many layers of approvals, all of these actually decrease system function. So it, and it's a tough thing to do because we want to exert control over everything, but you, you can't. So you think about how can I create the, the sort of simple rules, to borrow a phrase from Kathy Eisenhart and Shona Brown out at Stanford, the simple rules that will guide behavior and that will actually encourage order as opposed to trying to force it. Because when you try and force it, you don't get it. Okay, so the simple rules that guide behavior, behavior to encourage order. Right, things like, things like values as well. You know, think, think about that. If we're clear, on our, we're clear about our values, how we're going to work together, if we're clear on our, our larger mission, and we both work toward that. We saw this in the Boston Marathon bombing response, um, which granted was a relatively small event, traumatic for us, those of us here in Boston, but a relatively small event. But we saw agencies and different sectors working together almost seamlessly, not perfectly, but much better than we had seen in other places, in part because they were really clear about their mission. They were really clear about their values. They had trained together, so they were comfortable working together, and they were able to have handoffs, people who were needed to be in a decision were in it. If they were not in it, they didn't feel excluded. They understood why. Um, a lot of it is about building trust. I know we're going to talk about trust in a little bit. But it is, um, when you, again, shift your mindset as an executive and say, okay, what I'm looking for is order. What I want is as much order in the system as I can get. And if I can help that by putting more control in, great. But if I can help it by pulling some control back, that's great, too. Okay. Wait, does that take a huge mindset shift? <clears throat> I love this in terms of leading. So 
what else is really critical for people who are leading through turbulence and with all the interdependencies and all the changes? So one of those is impose or work towards order, not towards control. Any other advice? Well, I like to think about clarity. As creating clarity is one of the leader's most important jobs amidst turbulence. And I think in particular, clarity around purpose so both what is our sort of larger existential purpose? Why does this organization exist? But more concretely, and to go back to Peter Drucker, you know, the purpose of business is to create a customer. What job is our customer hiring us to help them do? If we can be really clear on that, that will help people make the decisions, take the actions. They're going to move toward that without having to be told every step of the way what they have to do. Clarity around values and really holding yourself to them and living into them. What are the values that are going to guide us or are going to guide our decision-making and the standards which we're going to hold ourselves accountable? And then clarity around performance. How are we measuring success? If you can create clarity around those three things as a leader, you can unleash an enormous amount of energy and commitment, and people can take independent action to help get you there. Um, so I think of it like, and this is focused as a verb, not as a noun. So it's not like going, you know, it's not about going away once a year on your retreat and saying, here's our focus for the focus point for the year, our focal point for the year. It's about constantly adjusting and realizing that as the market changes, as competitors make moves, as people come into or go out of your organization, you lose clarity and you have to be constantly refocusing like, like a photographer at a sports event. You're constantly trying to tweak to maintain clarity and keep people clear on those three things. That will get you a long way there. Okay, that is a powerful metaphor, this notion of a photographer, you know, doing action shots where you're just constantly shifting the lens a little bit to get clarity, clarity around purpose, clarity around values, clarity around metrics for performance, measuring success. That sounds fabulous. So I've got the creative clarity. I've got order, not control. Anything else that's critical? Well, the other piece I would say that plays right into this is optimizing for flow within your organization. This goes is, is back to order versus, versus control. Traditionally, you know, even though most of us run around with our smartphones and we've got digital strategies and online platforms and all these other digital things, most of our organizations are still built using an industrial age model where wisdom, decision-making capacity, customer knowledge were all thought to be scarce. scarce. And so you had to feed things up through the hierarchy and get decisions back down and everything was a lot of, sort of rationing of power and authority. And that was great in a fairly stable world, a fairly static world. What we need to do now is realize you can, you can flip that around and see decision-making capacity and customer knowledge and wisdom in abundance. And what you've got to do is give people a way to express what they've got, what they're learning, what they've seen, what they're doing. Optimizing for flow. Optimizing for flow of information, of ideas, of funds in some cases, of goods and services. How do you optimize for flow? And when you look at some of the new emerging uh, organizations that are dominant in their spaces, people like Airbnb and Uber and Amazon, their organizations optimized for flow. There aren't a lot of obstacles for, again, the flow of information, the flow of energy, the flow of ideas, bringing customers and sellers together. Um, they're really all about flow. 
And even in more traditional companies where you see people managing by a principle more than the four-inch binder full of rules. So a company like Herman Miller is one that I've looked at a fair, fair bit. And if you go to their website, and they're a furniture manufacturer and now a retailer as well, um, you'll find a page called, I believe it's called Things That Matter to Us. And there are six or seven principles there of things that guide how they run their business. And because everyone in the organization and their customers and their suppliers and their community can see these and see what are the pillars they've put down that are going to guide what they do, uh, it it opens up the, a lot of flow. It opens the ability to, for people to, to um, see where it ought to go to contribute, to add to things, to see where things are out of sync, and they can raise their hand and say, hey, we're not, you know, there's an obstacle here, there's a blockage to the flow. It's really about thinking, how are you not going to put up a lot of floodgates, but let, that, let all the, the critical parts of your organization flow to where they need to be at any given time? All right, and that, to me, that brings me right back to this whole notion of control. The more I am trying to impose control, the harder it's going to be to get this optimization for flow. Exactly right. Exactly right. And that's and big bureaucratic organizations and universities and governments and even large companies, um, where you have to go fill out twenty forms and get six approvals and go before this committee and they're they're all built to actually stop flow. They're actually put put regulation in because they're afraid of. To, to I don't want to butcher the metaphor, but they're afraid of flooding. Right, so they want to stop flow. They want it to be very controlled. And um, and again, in a turbulent world where you've got to move fast, you've got to be agile. Those those stop gaps get in the way, and they really hamstring your ability to 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 work well in the marketplace. Okay, all right, well, Eric, we're going to take a break. I'd love. I'm going to pose the question, but we'll have to pick it up at another point. And it strikes me as in a world in which we're optimizing for flow, you're running a cruise liner that just sailed into a turbulent uh, hurricane. I wonder do how you do optimize for flow for a news media a press release. But we'll come back to that one. With me today is Eric McNulty. We have been talking about managing in turbulent times. There are really three core ideas that Eric has proposed that help you lead through the chaos, uncertainty, system scale change, and transparency. And those have to do with the notion that you drive towards order, not towards control, that you um, optimize for flow, and that I lost my note track. And that you see clarity. That you're constantly revising for, towards clarity. We'll be right back. And when we come back, I want to talk about resilience and how that plays into this one. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. 
If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace, Every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, Call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Glad to have you back. With me today is Eric McNulty. Eric is a writer, speaker, educator with a passion for purpose-driven leadership His work centers around leadership in high-stakes, high-stress situations, and he's the director of Harvard's National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Two books of note, Three Critical Shifts in Thinking for the Evolving Leader, and Your Critical First 10 Days as a Leader, as well as his regular column on strategy and business. Now, we've just been talking, one, about what it is that's driving so much chaos and uncertainty, not just necessarily events, but kind of the dynamics, the megatrends that are affecting all of us. And we were just talking about, as leaders, there are sort of three primary things that you want to be doing that are going to make a difference in your ability to lead through turbulent times. One of those has to do with seeking order, not control. You use control only in the service of creating order and not the other way around. Two is clarity, that constantly refocusing the lens to make sure on a regular basis that the values, the purpose, the measures of success are clear to everybody inside and outside the organization. And the third is this notion of optimizing for flow. Now, we started this segment talking about a cruise ship off the coast of North Carolina that just sailed into a hurricane and that passengers were uploading video of what was going on faster than the company can get a press release written. So at the break, I was just teasing Eric about, so how do you, if you're in communications, optimize for flow in that kind of environment? So Eric, how do you do it? Well, Certainly, and it's not easy, let me say, at the beginning with, but there are a number of things you can do. I mean, all that we talked about in that first segment is really about adaptive capacity. It's about being comfortable with change. It's about being comfortable with ambiguity and knowing how to move forward when things are not 100% clear. So from a communications perspective, and I have worked with companies who do this, so it's not like I'm just making it up in a theoretical way, is, first of all, there are communications you can have 
prepared and ready to go. You know, we are aware of a situation where we're deploying all necessary resources and we'll be back to you in 60 minutes with an update. Those kind of holding statements that you should have prepared, run through legal, in your top drawer, and then with a change of a couple of words, you can go rather quickly. As a company, I think you need to bless the messenger, not the message. And again, that can be tough in a public company where there are regulatory concerns and SEC concerns and all that. But that in a fast-moving situation, you've got to know that you've got someone who is good enough that they will know what to do, what to say, and what not to say, and not have to run everything through four or five or six people to get approved. But bless that messenger so you can go. And the other thing is to, is to realize and accept, because we've seen it now over and over again, that because of this ubiquitous uh, transparency and connectivity, People are going to be uploading video and putting tweets out and other, other bits of social media. That's going to happen. So you've got to just accept that and figure it out. Rehearse some of what's going to happen. Rehearse some of the places where you may fail to figure out how you're going to recover. Um, there's a really good book called The Other F Word by John Danner and Mark Coppersmith. Probably a good, good guess for you to get at some point. Um, who have a whole great framework around how to think about failure and rehearse your big failures so you know what to do. Um, even refer, rehearse for your successes. I know we were just talking before the show about the politics in the UK and how interesting it was that after the Brexiteers won the Brexit vote, they had no plan of what to do. Okay. <laughs> You've got to rehearse some of these things and think where, where might we fail, where might we succeed, and how do we move really, really fast? Okay. All right. I love that. So the other F word is the name of the book you recommended? Yes, it is. It's, it's quite good. All right. So that's exactly what I want to talk about in this next segment, because when this times of chaos and uncertainty and craziness, stuff isn't going to go the way you wanted it to go, and some things are going to go wrong. So we often talk about that in terms of resilience, the ability to cope with that. So before you get launched on it, first, what do you mean by resilience? And then second, how do we deal with this failure and be more resilient? Well, I look at resilience as not the ability to bounce back, but the ability to bounce forward. The first moment in the face of adversity, when you feel hope and begin to feel some confidence that there's a better way forward, there's better times ahead, is when you begin to demonstrate resilience. And so it is this notion of, I can do it, we can do it. And part of that comes from a lot of training, a lot of uh, working with your team and having a comfort with your team, or if it's going to be, again, in some sort of crisis situation where you may bring people together who don't ordinarily work side by side, having run them through exercises and drills and other uh, activities that get them some sort of comfort with each other. That's what we saw in Boston. Boston, people in Boston, the different agencies have been training together and across sectors for more than a decade before the marathon bombing happened, and that all paid off. But the second notion is, and this is every day, is this notion of failure and getting comfortable with failure. We fail all the time. Things don't go as planned. And if you're going to be resilient, you've actually got to have a high high tolerance for low-consequence mistakes. Bad things are going to happen. How do you learn from them? How do you pick yourself up and how do you move forward? So I had the opportunity to, to interview the head of one of the investment banks in New York. And after the interview where we were talking about some other things, the managing partner gave me a tour of the trading floor. And it was a sea of desks with people with four screens and three phones, and it was just seemed like chaos. 
I said, how do you manage this? How do you manage this 24-7 buzz of activity? And he said to me, the first rule is bad news finds me fast. He said, because if it finds me fast, I can help fix it. So you'll never get fired in this organization for making an honest mistake. You will get fired for trying to cover it up and solve it yourself. So there was, and there's a, that's an example of organizing for flow, but it's also thinking about resilience. That yes, again, when our businesses are moving rapid fire, when the, there's a lot of turbulence in the world around us, we're going to make missteps. We're going to make mistakes. These should not be seen as tragic failures unless they're you know, enormous consequence. People die, people go out of business, those kind of things you don't want to have a high tolerance for. But otherwise, it's, it's a natural part of life. How do we learn from it? How do we support each other? How do we move forward? How do you support the people who've made the mistake to say, you know what? I see you learned from it. I know you're going to get, better, get it right next time. Let's go. Um, so it's, it is this, we don't talk, that's, that's why that, actually the name of that book, I think, is, is the other F word. It's one we don't talk about. We don't say it out loud. And we really should every day in our organizations. Because the only way you innovate, the only way you create, the only way you bring forth that big new product or, or service is to do a lot of iteration, to make a lot of mistakes in service of getting to something better. It's absolutely fascinating. I know when I have the opportunity, in fact, I do this regularly, I'll have a panel of senior groups in whatever leadership training that I am doing, and I have those leaders talk about the career progression, some of the highlights, some of the key turning points, how they got those opportunities, what really happened, um, just to understand, for people to understand how the big breakthroughs come about. But the second thing I always have them talk about is tell me about the biggest mistake. Um, the biggest failure, the biggest setback. You know, sometimes your own doing, sometimes you're just the wrong seat at the wrong time. And then, and more importantly, what did you do and how did you do it? And the exactly. fascinating thing is everybody has plenty of stories. And usually the audience is totally shocked because this isn't the stuff we talk about, but it is part of a career. Absolutely. I mean, there are, you know, we do have this nice polished uh, positive view of ourselves that we stick in our LinkedIn profile or we put out there on our resumes and CVs. Um, but really what makes up all of us is, yes, that good stuff, but yes, it is, you know, the time you got laid off or the time you got divorced or the time you had a tragedy. I mean, these are part of our lives too. and These are ways we learn and this is where resilience comes from. Resilience doesn't come from everything going right and it doesn't come from a training course on resilience. It, coming, it comes from facing adversity, facing failure, uh, facing setbacks and getting back up and moving forward and making something better out of it. And, and I think you're right. I think particularly in now where people don't have jobs for as long a period of time, you don't stay with one company for your entire career for the most part, uh, you move around more, there, is, there are a lot more opportunities for this, and, it, and we've all had to learn to reinvent ourselves. I mean, after the, the crash of 2007 and 2008, how many people wound up out of work? How many people wound up losing their homes or going through some other calamity? And you've had to, you have to reinvent yourself. Some have done it well and some have struggled with it. Um, but that's becoming sort of a core competency now. Um, we, we just, again, that we aren't in that stable a world where you're going to go work for Acme Widgets for 35 years and then retire and get the gold watch. Maybe one or two, but only one or two. And they don't get so, the gold watch anymore. 
<laughs> that is true. Fair enough. It may look like gold. It's just not real gold. All right. So if resilience, which I like your notion that it's the ability to bounce forward, and when you get that first sense of hope of I can do it, I know what to do next, that's where resilience starts to emerge. And if resilience comes from facing adversity and failure, what's your advice for help for helping people develop a greater resilience? Well, I think it is for looking for that stretch assignment, looking for the way to play, the time to push the envelope, the place to push the envelope. And I look for organizations and executives in the organizations to encourage risk-taking and experimentation. Um, that will help people see they can fail, they can get up, and they can survive failure within the organization. Um, you know, there's a, there's a gentleman named Paul Iske who was at ABN Amro, the Dutch bank. Um, he's now moved on to an academic role. But the time he was there, he created something called the Institute for Brilliant Failures, where the company actually celebrated their failures from which they learned important lessons. And so that was a way they could validate and say to people, okay, you're going to go out, you're, you're going to make a mistake, and you're going to stand back up and move forward. Um, that is one way you can begin to build resi- resilience. Um, sometimes it is just what life throws at you. Um, you know, uh, Warren Bennis and Bob Thomas wrote a book probably a dozen years ago now um, called Geeks and Geezers, where they looked at young leaders and more senior leaders and tried to figure out what they had in common. And what they found was not what they went looking for. What they found was that these people all had a crucible experience. Say, in some cases, it was being assigned to a, you know, go be country manager in India, or it was they had cancer at a young age or lost a parent, um, or it was they had had their heart set on going to Harvard and, and didn't get in and had to go do something else. But they'd had a crucible experience where they were put to a test and they had to see if they could do be- they could get through it, and they did, and that gives them the confidence to then go on and tackle more and more and more. Um, and so, some organizations actually try and create these crucible experiences. Um, some other you know, faith-based organizations do the same thing. You think of the, the mission, the mission uh, trips that the uh, Latter-day Saints go on. Those are about uh, put, putting somebody out into a very strange place and seeing if they can carry forward and do what they do, and then they'll get stronger as a result. Peace Corps, things like that, do the same thing. Okay. All right. It, rather than having every suggesting everybody resign and go and join Peace Corps or any number of other events, it strikes me that in talent development circles, or as leaders, that if we were smarter for say at saying to people, this is a crucible experience for you, we yeah. labeled it at that. We understood what that meant, and we helped people process what has worked, what hasn't worked, why, and more importantly, was the lessons learned out of it. Um, that we would have leaders who are better prepared for the future we are now living in. Absolutely. I mean, I was I had the great fortune several years back to be sent to a leadership development program, and it was a week long program. And one of the things that that was done was you had a three hundred and sixty degree review, and it was the first one I had done. It was the first one that most of the people who attended this, and we were all from different organizations. And it was a bit like boot camp in the Marine Corps because you went in and they gave you your 360 results. And, of course, the rest of the world doesn't view you the way you view yourself. And all of a sudden, it sort of took everybody way down. Okay, you're not as confident as you think you are. You're not as, 
decisive as you think you are. You're not as fair as you think you are. This is how people see you. But then there was a very structured way of bringing you back. There was some coaching. There was some exercising. There was some peer work with the other people in the room. And so by the end of the week, everybody had been resilient. They had come back and said, okay, yeah, and here are the strengths that were reflected in that 360-degree review. And here's how I can work to mitigate change or whatever I need to do in terms of the other things I've learned about myself that perhaps I'm not quite as happy about. So it was a very intentional bring you down and then help build you back up. And that second part is really important because if you do a bunch of 360s and don't properly manage that climb back up the stairs, you're only going to do a lot of damage. But that kind of experience to me was a really dramatic one. And I saw the people, again, the people around me, um, boy, was it eye-opening. And it was a very intentional crucible experience. I've done similar kinds of things, and I hope that I do some of those things for clients on occasion. Um, but I think you're right, trying to have to look in the mirror and recognize that some people are not terribly happy with you in spite of your best intentions, and then to decide, so great, what does that mean, and what do I want to do about it, and to walk away with some actions is also another way of fostering this resilience. Absolutely. Okay. <clears throat> Okay, we're going to take a break again. Um, with me today is Eric McNulty. Eric is the Director of Research and Program Faculty at Harvard's National Preparedness Leadership Institute. His work is around leadership in high stakes and high stress situations. And the two books I'll highly recommend are Three Critical Shifts in Thinking for the Evolving Leader, plus Your Critical First 10 Days as a Leader. And I'd also reference you to his regular column online at Strategy Park. Plus business. So we've been talking about resilience, that ability to bounce forward, have a sense of hope, know what you want to do, learn from it, and move forward. Not the ability to resist failure, but to lean into failure through a crucible experience, for example. When we come back, I want to talk about the last component that makes all of this work, and that has to do with trust. We'll be right back. us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Your entrepreneurial vision has taken hold. Your business is growing. It's everything you hoped for. Or is it? With growth comes bigger headaches, more hiring, more capital, more customers to satisfy, more employees to manage, more plates to juggle, and more demands on your time. Get off that merry-go-round now. Tune in to The Business Edge with Marsha Zeidel. You'll meet street-smart entrepreneurs and business leaders sharing their success stories as well as practical solutions to the unique challenges faced by growing companies. Heard every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. 
Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Kless. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Eric McNulty. Eric's specialty is leadership in high stakes and high stress situations. And we have been talking about what it takes to lead when times are volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. There's systemic change going on all around you. And there's incredible transparency through online digital media, everybody available all the time. Translate how to lead in the world we're living in in the moment. There have been a couple of principles that um, Eric has talked about. One is that you look for order, not for control. To seek order, not to seek control. Number two is that you seek constant clarity, that you're constantly re-shifting your lens to make sure that you're very clear about the purpose, about the values, and about the measures. And the third one is that you optimize for flow. Rather than, again, that has to do with order. We've also been talking about this notion of resilience, meaning that you are prepared to move forward, not to avoid failure, but in effect to lean into that failure, even to encourage people to have a crucible experience and to learn from that experience. So to talk actively about the failures, to take some lessons from them and move forward. And I love the story from Avian Ambro about creating an institute for business failures, which are their spectacular failures from which they learned. Excellent idea. All right, so now for this last little bit, I want to shift and talk about trust because... Trust is just such an absolute underpinning. And if I put it in a simple terms, if I'm working with a leader who's just put me in a crucible experience where I may or may not make it and there may be a big failure, I better have a lot of trust or I'm not doing it. Or in other cases where different agencies are collaborating, the trust is the component that kind of brings them together and makes it work. Now, I realize this is impossible to wrap up in a very short period of moments, but I want to talk about trust. And I want to distinguish between trust in my personal relationships. I think I know what that means. I know how to find it and identify it. But trust in a corporate context, I'm not so sure it's all the same. So, Eric, how do we begin to cultivate trust? Well, I think you're right, Wanda. I think that trust is not the same in an organizational context because as much as we say that it is, um, there are certain enduring obligations uh, to shareholders, to regulators, to uh, to our customers, 
And fulfilling those may mean we engage in activities that other stakeholders see as not trustworthy. Um, so things you did to make the numbers that perhaps make your workers upset or, or vice versa. So what I encourage and what I work with organizations to do is go through the exercise of describing and having them do the work, not me, of what does it mean to be fully trustworthy to each of your stakeholders. So let's talk about that because it is different if you are a bank versus an auto manufacturer versus a chemical company or a pharma uh, company. And so what what does that mean? Uh, And get very specific about it and go through it down to the individual roles in an organization. So what does that mean? Because you're right, if a if a company sends you on a crucible experience, how are they going to treat you if you don't make it? That's a big part of trust. How are they going to treat the people who have to leave the organization, perhaps are, are, are laid off or whatever the, the euphemism we, we're using these days? How do they trust people? Um, how do we live into those values that are on the wall? Um, one of the interesting exercises I went through a couple of years back was to look at the organizations that were named publicly in some bad way during the the Great Recession, so the various financial institutions in particular, and we went back and looked at their value statements uh, or their mission statements that they had publicly, and they all sounded wonderful. They all talked about trust and customer first and taking care of their people and all of that, and yet they had engaged in, in many cases in activities that uh, betrayed that trust uh, in pursuit of something else. And so I think it really is beholden upon organizations to have that hard conversation. Because you know what, your people know what they view as trustworthy and with your customers and your suppliers and others, actually have the conversation. Because the only way you flesh it out in a way that's real as opposed to any idealized take that I'll put on it. Because there are these tensions, there are these conflicts um, where what I want you to do for me is not what you can do because you've got other obligations and there are not, this isn't all smooth and pretty and clean. And so trying to get there is, uh, by being honest about getting there, is, is the first step I would take. Okay. I love that one. I know um, when I am working, particularly when I'm working with women in the organization, when I find that a woman has a manager or another superior that she fundamentally trusts, typically she's doing great things and her career is going in great directions. But I equally find that trust is eroded very, very, very quickly. It's fragile, incredibly fragile. And often it comes from something absolutely unintentional. It's not like the manager lied to her, male or female. It's often just didn't withheld, didn't say something that could have been said, like just didn't have that conversation about expectations on promotion. Didn't have that conversation about why I think you're ready or not ready. And those simple things are what kill trust. It's the lack of information, not any overt action. At least that's what I see. I think you're right, and I think it is. Um, and it's hard to have these conversations because, again, there are we're, we're all busy. We're trying to do a lot of things. Although, what I have seen quite a bit is is companies who say they want one thing, but then they reward something else. And so, where there is, uh, you know, they want you to be coaches and, and nurturing to your employees, but they've, you've got a really hard number to manage in terms of the hours you can, you can approve or the amount of overtime you can approve in you know, retail organizations, things like that, that, uh, that make you be pretty tough. Um, and it can be hard to be openly open and honest about that. And I think that um, 
you know, for companies who really want to have leaders at all levels, and I think that's where companies ultimately need to get to, is to, is to have leadership as a core capacity, as an emergent property within, within the, the larger system, um, is to confront these things. Because when you confront them, they actually aren't that hard. I think your, your people know what you're doing that makes you less than trustworthy in their eyes. And at least you have the conversation. You can say, yes, we can fix that and change it, or no, we can't. Here's the most we can do. And again, once you know what to expect, it's much easier to trust. That's what it's based on, um, is fulfilling expectations and, and, with, and making sure that everyone's ground, trying to be grounded in, in the same reality. Okay. All right. So your core thing about creating a cult, cultivating trust is about having the hard conversations having the hard conversations about what it means to act in a trustworthy manner to all of our stakeholders, and that can be done at any level in the organization. And it also means to have the conversation about what it can be expected. What can I realistically, reasonably do? Not what would be nice if we had infinite time and money. And, and taking the actions that, that back those up. Okay. That's, uh, that's absolutely crucial. And I know Herman Miller, who I mentioned earlier, and then United Stationers is another company I've looked at. They're now known as Ascendant. Um, but during the, the downturn a couple of, you know, a few years back, um, when they had to cut back on, on their people, um, they were very open and honest and transparent. The executives took cuts first to preserve as many of the frontline jobs as possible. And that made the people who were let go feel better because they saw the actual business necessity of it, but it also gave the people who remained a lot of faith in the organization and its management because they saw the actions that they took. That When you say, you know, people are our most valuable asset, well, here, we've taken a hit ourselves to try and keep as many people as possible in the organization. That's the kind of thing that builds trust. Okay. And then telling those stories and, living, and following up with the actions is critically important. Okay. It makes a bunch of sense to me. Um, so it is, it's a series of conversations and then the actions that back it up. And being honest, I think also we're back to where we started. It's being honest about the, some of the complexities and some of the interdependencies that exist in reality among our stakeholders and our, our obligations to customers, to employees, to the communities that we serve. That's right. That's right. And I think somehow we feel like we there, there's a... We can't be honest for some reason. There is this thing of, okay, I'm protecting the institution, or I don't, really don't want to voice the reality of what's here. Um, but it's so much better when you do it. And this is just like a personal relationship, right? If you try and pretend everything's okay when it's not, the relationship dies eventually. You, know, you have to be able to get things on the table and, and talk about what the reality is. And I, my experience has been most people are very accepting of the reality when they understand it and they see that you are being genuine and upfront. Okay, fabulous. Eric, it's been a delight today. I feel like we could talk for another three hours. Um, with me today is Eric McNulty. Uh, he's a writer, speaker, educator with a passion for purpose-driven leadership. His work centers around leadership in high-stakes, high-stress situations. His books, Three Critical Shifts in Thinking for the Evolving Leader and Your First Critical Ten Days as a Leader, also a regular column on strategy plus business. I think, Eric, as I look over this one, a couple of things strike me that just really resonate, and this notion of being able to deal with the turbulent times to strive for order, not control, 
to optimize the flow, again, not to try to control things, but to optimize the flow of information and insights and communication. Um, And this notion of clarity, just constantly seeking clarity. And I think that's where trust has come from in this last equation that we've been talking about. So, Eric, thank you for being here. Wanda, it's been my pleasure. I, I agree with you. We could talk for three more hours at least. All right, we may have to try that one again. Okay. All right, ne- with us next week is Marsha Reynolds, and we're going to be talking about crucial moments of conversation in our conversations, or more importantly, how to lean into the discomfort to get some better results. Join us then. Thank you again for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Take charge this week.